Sifter for the ear. News, interviews, reviews, cinema, TV, streaming. Action. Hi, y'all. This is Jerry Williams, a.k.a. TV Jerry. Richmond is home to all manner of filmmakers, some of whom have already been on Sifter for the year. This show features two women who have produced and directed documentaries. Gary Winogrand was a true poet of photography, a true poet of American life. He took this genre of so-called street photography and turned it on its head and made it something new. He developed ways of photographing that left it all very confusing to people he was photographing as to whether or not he had actually taken the picture. That was an excerpt from Gary Winogrand, All Things Are Photographable, a documentary about the famed photographer by Sasha Waters Fryer. It premiered at South by Southwest in 2018, where it won a special jury award and also aired on the PBS series American Masters in 2019. It is so American, fire, so like us. It's desolation and its eventual brief triumph. He'll be one of the great American poets. He already is. That was an excerpt from the other documentary producer featured today, Michelle Poulouse. Her film, A Late Style of Fire, Larry Levis, American Poet, examines the life and work of this noted poet, the final chapter of his life which took place right here in Richmond while he was teaching at VCU. I'll be chatting with Michelle and Sasha on today's show. Sifter, review of the week. Under the Banner of Heaven on Hulu. The writer-creator of this series is Dustin Lance Black, who won an Oscar for his script of Milk. As a former member of the LDS community, he brings a special insight into the subject. It's based on the true 1984 crime, when a wife and her baby daughter in the LDS community were killed in Salt Lake Valley, Utah. Andrew Garfield plays the lead detective who not only looks for the killer, but confronts his own crisis of faith as he explores the concepts of the fundamentalist version of Mormonism that motivated them. As usual, Garfield delivers a subtle and potent performance, as does the rest of the cast. While the setup in episode one promises an intense thriller, the subsequent episodes get hung up on the religious debate, which inhibits the tension. The series presents a fascinating look at this little-known aspect of Mormon history framed with sometimes compelling sequences. It could have benefited from less concept and more criminal content. I gave it three and a half out of five stars. Michelle Poulos and Sasha Waters-Fryer, welcome to Sifter for the Ear. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So first of all, how do you know each other? Was that Michelle? Did you just call her up and say, hi, hey, I want to meet you? Is that how y'all met? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and then you stayed in touch when you started working on your doc? Yeah, yeah, we stayed in touch. And I've reached out to Sasha for advice and guidance, you know, via email and on the phone over the past few years since we met. And she's been an enormous help to me. Thank you, Sasha. <laughs> I think there's a really kind of tight, well, not tight, not like tight knit, but like a small but robust community of documentary filmmakers in Richmond, which I think has been really great. Before the pandemic, there was a kind of informal group. These two wonderful filmmakers, Nate and Tyler, would bring people together. Footnote. That group was called RVA Documentary, and it ran from 2017 until COVID. It was hosted by Nate Clark and Tyler Trumbo of Fourth Line. Yeah, Tyler and Nate are doing that, and that's been a big resource for me, too. I don't know if you've also interviewed them. I mean, their film, The Passing On, is really, really beautiful. It's a wonderful film. And they did have it, I think, launch at festivals in 2020. 
you know, I think it's it's done well. I think as we were talking about before that film festival space in 2020 going into 2021 was really a challenge for so many filmmakers. Yeah. In January, I bought tickets to, I think, 10 Sundance films over two weekends. I just got out the popcorn and watched, you know, I'm a big documentary person. We're all documentaries. Virtual, obviously. It was great to be able to see all these films virtually. So I hope that moving forward, there is that hybrid in-person festival experience, but also the ability to live in a limited window. I also just saw a wonderful film that was at the DC Film Fest, where they made it available virtually for a very kind of limited window of time. And I love that. I love being able to see things as I'm reading about them instead of having to wait a year to see it. But let's talk about y'all. You each have a documentary that you've finished and has been on the circuits and is now available to view anywhere. I've watched them both on Amazon. First of all, give us each of you a little nutshell background of what your background is. Go ahead, Michelle. Why don't you drop in first? I did study filmmaking years ago at NYU. That was my kind of start. From there, I ended up interning for Albert Mazels. I worked for him for some time, and then I was an assistant editor for the editor, Jonathan Oppenheim. Footnote. Albert Mazels and his brother David were a prominent documentary team whose films included Give Me Shelter and Grey Gardens. John Oppenheim edited numerous PBS series, as well as the movies Paris is Burning and The Oath. I did that for a while, and then my life sort of went in all kinds of directions, and I discovered playing music, and I did that for for years and years, and and the filmmaking kind of took a backseat at that point. You know, about 10 years ago, I, I picked it back up again. And before I jump to Sasha, you said music. Were you in a band? Did you tour? Was this anything we would have ever heard of? I was in a band. I was in many bands. I was in a signed band called Tanakh, and that was based out of here in Richmond, sort of an avant-garde kind of psychedelic folk band. <laughs> and, uh, okay, yeah. that's an interesting combination. Yeah, I played with them for years, and, you know, we have a number of albums out. I'm not the kind of person that can multitask very well. So I couldn't be in a band and edit a film and write a book, you know, at the same time. Now, Sasha, I know you do multitask because you make documentaries and you teach all the time. So uh, give the listeners a little background. I was also in New York, maybe around the same time. I uh, was an intern for a filmmaker named Barbara Koppel. Footnote. Barbara Koppel is a documentary filmmaker who won an Oscar for Harlan County, USA in 1977 and American Dream in 1991. I studied photography, but then kind of gravitated more toward documentary film. I went to graduate school for film and then have been teaching for over 20 years. Now, not at VCU all 20 years. Not at 20. No, no. I started at the University of Iowa in the year 2000. I also am really interested in experimental film, avant-garde film, more personal film. So I've tried to have this balance because as Michelle knows, making an independent documentary takes literally years <laughs> to yep, finish, right? Yep. It can take three. But so one way that I sustain myself when I'm making longer films is I try to make short films that I can finish and circulate and just be out in the world and participating and seeing other filmmakers as opposed to just in my little room editing by myself. Long names seem to be the theme of the day here because, of course, mine was Spider Mice of Jesus. And then Michelle's is A Late Style of Fire, Larry Levis, American Poet. And Sasha's is Gary Winogrand, All Things Are Photographable. When you make biography, it's important to have the artist's name as part of the title. I think that's just sort of a norm that's come about because of the streaming services, maybe. 
You mentioned that you started doing photography, and ironically, mm-hmm. Gary Wanagrand is a well-known photographer. So my question was going to be to both of you, but yours might have had the answer already. Why did you choose the specific artist that you chose? So Gary Winogrand was a really important artist to me when I was an undergraduate photography major. I was at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. He was already at that time, maybe a little bit falling out of fashion. He died in the 80s. There was a big career retrospective, posthumous retrospective in the late 1980s that I saw. So he was respected, but he wasn't where photography as an art form was going in the 90s, particularly as things started to move towards digital manipulation, the introduction of Photoshop and so forth. But he was this person who I just was so influenced and inspired by the kind of wildness of his pictures, the idea of kind of being out in the street as opposed to being in the studio. In 2013, there was a show that opened at um, the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. And it was around that time that I remembered, oh, This is a photographer who he's still just great. He had done books, but there hadn't been a documentary about him. I mean, ironically, there were people who I knew, you know, even as a college photography student who I ended up interviewing for the film or being back into, you know, contacting again for research and so on and so forth. So certainly my undergrad photography education definitely was very connected to that interest in Winogrand. For those who don't know, uh, Winogrand has done literally millions of photographs. The one that probably everybody knows is the classic Marilyn Monroe on the subway grate with the dress blowing up, right? That's the one. So Michelle, how did you, and I think I kind of know this answer because it's about a poet and I know you wrote. So how did you decide that you wanted to focus on Larry Levis? I moved to Richmond when Hurricane Katrina hit. Yeah, I was living in New Orleans at the time. Oh, okay. And I came to, and I moved to Richmond And I started taking creative writing classes at at VCU. And that was my introduction to Larry Levis, his poetry in particular. Larry Levis taught at VCU. He actually died up in Churchill in the 90s. Right. So when I moved here, it was as though Richmond was almost haunted by his presence because I knew so many people that knew him colleagues, former students, you know, that kind of thing. And so uh, I became very interested in his work and his writing. And I hadn't been really thinking about filmmaking at that time. At some point I said, hey, there's a camera at VCU I can grab and maybe make this, uh, put this on record. And it wasn't until I did a um, Kickstarter campaign and realized that there was a big audience for something, a project like this. He has huge fans all over the country. I mean, kids come to to VCU to study poetry because Larry Levis taught there. And and just so you mentioned in the documentary too, his manuscripts are in the library there, in the special archives. And also they uh, have now in the collection, all of the interviews I conducted for the film live in the Larry Levis collection. So great. great realizing through the Kickstarter campaign that there were people that were excited about it, put money into it. And that's the point at which I said, oh, now I really have to do this because people (laughs) (laughs) donated money. (laughs) A late style of fire. Is that one of his poems? Is that such a beautiful title? It is based on a poem he wrote called My Story in a Late Style of Fire. It's a poem where Levis is kind of reckoning with uh, an affair that he had during the course of his marriage and the effect that it has on his family and and his child. He had a young child at the time. 
And so he's created a fire out of his life by having this affair. And the poem sort of articulates that. Uh-huh. Now, Sasha, yours is all things are photographable. What was the inspiration for that one? It was something that Gary Winogram said. I can't remember if it was in, in a print interview or somewhere else. <laughs> I actually wanted to call the film Monkeys Make the Problem More Difficult. He had a lot of <laughs> photographs with monkeys, and that was something that he said monkeys make the problem more difficult. My producer was like, no one's going to know it's a film about photography. That's a terrible title. It's like, but it's funny. Yeah, so yeah. It, has photo- it, is, it has photography in the title. So we, yeah, we yeah. know a little bit about what it's about. Sasha, talk about your production process a little bit, how long it took, how big the crew was, or obviously, as you know, with any, as we all know with documentaries, the crew can change because you're doing it over so long a time in different locations. What was the process of putting this documentary together? I had it easier, right? Because I had a huge archive to work with. There had been a new career retrospective in 2013. And so I had that archive. Plus I had a wonderful relationship with Uh, the Center for Creative Photography at the University of Arizona, which is where his entire archive is housed. So I had access to the contact sheets, work that had never been seen before. When he died, he left behind literally thousands and thousands of rolls of unprocessed film, about a quarter of a million photographs that no one had seen before. The original material that was made for the film consisted of about a dozen interviews and then a small amount of original animation with, that I commissioned from a really wonderful animator named Kelly Gallagher. So those interviews was a very, they were, it was a small crew. It was me and five other people generally. And those were shot in New York, primarily San Francisco and Los Angeles. And then one of them was in Connecticut. So it was a really kind of lean and mean production. I got some early funding from the National Endowment for the Arts. I also did a Kickstarter not something I ever hope to do again, <laughs> but I probably will have to at some point in my career. It's just, it's wonderful to have people to realize, like like you're saying, Michelle, like, oh, wow, there are people all over the country who know who Larry is and really care about this work and are excited. So that piece is great, but it's just stressful to run those campaigns. Uh, Michelle, how about you? I know you've interviewed uh, more than 12 people. Mine was also really lean. And I ended up, though, working with this local cinematographer. And Sasha, you might, I, you both might know him, Kevin Gallagher. Oh, and, yeah, I love him. He's great. And everybody always comments on the cinematography. And that's all Kevin. I mean, he, he just has a great eye. It was basically Kevin, myself, <laughs> my husband. And uh, would you pull him in to be a grip or something? He was a, he was a grip, right? He was a great grip, but it was really just the three of us, Kevin, my husband and myself went to California. Larry Levis grew up in the central Valley in Fresno, California. And then we spent a lot of time in Richmond because I interviewed a lot of Richmond poets. Right. Now, now, Sasha, with you, obviously you had that wealth of photographs. If anything else, you had to figure out which ones to leave out, but what were some of your biggest challenges in putting the whole doc together? Well, the festival release was almost four years ago. The broadcast was about almost three years ago. I am actually starting, I'm developing a book of some of these Winogrand photographs that have never been seen before that we found in the archives. For me, I wondered, well, should I tell this story chronologically, right? So in the beginning, I was thinking about the elements of Gary's life as 
story blocks, but I wasn't sure that the way they would be structured would be chronological. I experimented with that in the editing room with having it not be chronological, but at the end of the day, there's a reason why a lot of biography is chronological. <laughs> right, 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 right. And so I went that, I went that route. Sasha, you mentioned festivals and you got exhibition and you got broadcast. Uh, so was there one particular story or a cool thing that happened during the festivals or during any of that process that would be fun to share? At South by Southwest, the film won a special jury prize, which was named by the jury. It wasn't a category that already existed. I mean, they saw it and they just said, we're going to create this because this film yeah, must. They said, wow. we're going <laughs> to. That's great. And so they gave it, they gave it an award for best feminist reconsideration of a male artist. oh my god i love that and it really made me feel like people got it you know like that jury just got the film i was so thrilled it's always fun to get an award like who doesn't like that especially when it's really unexpected i was like sitting way up in the balcony and then (laughs) i gotta go down and get this award it's so cool well now i have to ask you about that because that's interesting because i never looked at it from that point of view of a woman creating it i mean obviously i know you did but did you see that was that an intent of yours up front or is that just something they applied maybe it was because it was during the me too period and they wanted to no i mean that was definitely something even pre me too that i would you know, I wouldn't talk about it. Like I wouldn't write about it in grant applications because I think if you write in a grant application, I'm making a feminist biography. People are like, <laughs> right, F right. word, what's exactly, that? Exactly. Right? But it definitely was a way that I was thinking about him as an artist and thinking about the ways in which he, you know, a part of what the film is about is about his struggle to be an artist and a parent, which is something I can really identify with now as an older person with, you know, children. And I was just really interested in that myth of, oh, to be a great artist, you know, you've got to be this real asshole husband, you know, bad father, right? Like that he he struggled with that kind of dumb mythology that we have around artists and male artists in particular. Michelle, how about you? What was an experience that you had at a festival or somewhere in exhibition that was kind of memorable? There was a moment that I found really interesting. And that was, so I had been trying to interview Larry Levis's second wife. And she was living out in Arizona at the time. And I was too. We were both out there. We kept missing each other. Uh, She said, why don't you come to my house this summer? I'll be in Connecticut. I'll be at my Connecticut house. Why don't you come? And I said, fine, I'll be in Connecticut too this summer. And so we figured out that we were both going to be in this really small town called Old Lyme, Connecticut, which is where I grew up. And that's where this woman lived. That's convenient. So when I went out to interview her, it was a house at the end of a dirt road near the mouth of the Connecticut River. And it's where I spent all of my high school years on the weekends. I'd go out getting in trouble, smoking and making out in the cars. And she said, you were the group of people that when Larry and I lived here together, you were the ones out there kind of playing music and drinking and having fun. And, you know, that is an amazing story. That is kismet. That is such a crazy coincidence. Michelle, I want to ask you a couple of times uh, in the documentary, you had people that you were interviewing hold up a picture of them or a picture of Levis or something, as opposed to putting it on a copy stand. You did some of that too. I mean, you see them standing there holding the picture in front of their face. What was your concept behind doing that? I stole that. from. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I mean, I think, you know, I've seen Herzog do those kinds of things before in his films. And also I just... 
was so on the move. I didn't have a portable scanner with me to scan that stuff. It was kind of in the in the moment. You know, I think it works. I mean, even if I'd had a portable scanner, I, I kind of like the effect. Sasha, I, I know I, we talked about this some when we were having lunch. You had I'm a Man, the song. You had a Bob Dylan song, and you were talking about the challenges you had with music. I wanted to ask you about that, but also I noticed that his son did the music for you, but you didn't interview him. Is that correct? Right. So I had I had three different kinds of music in the Winogrand film. I had some popular music from the kind of to show this arc from the nineteen late nineteen fifties to the early nineteen eighties. I had some classical music. Uh, I think it was most, it was Mozart because Gary was a big Mozart fan. And then I had original jazz tracks by Ethan Winogrand, who's a wonderful, amazing musician in his own right. And Ethan was just fantastic. I mean, the whole family was just fantastic and so supportive. And I thought about interviewing Ethan and Lori and Melissa. Those are all the children. Those are his three children. And I did not do it. But I will tell you that the day after the screening in New York City, I had breakfast with the three of them, as well as with Lori and Ethan's mother, who's in the film. The film's done. It's just screened at film form. And I'm sitting there in this diner, and I'm looking at them, and I'm like, I'm an idiot. I can't believe I didn't do this interview. (laughs) Because their energy together was so great. Right, right. You know, these two siblings who grew up together, and then they're much younger sister, you know, from who has a different mother. And I literally was like looking at them going, I can't, why didn't I interview them? That was just, yeah. I well, don't Let me know. just say, you're the only filmmaker ever who's had regrets about something they didn't do during a shoot. <laughs> <laughs> What's next for both of you? Michelle, you want to go first? What are you, are you working on another doc? I am. Um... She says with, <laughs> <laughs> y'all can't see her face, but she's like, what am I doing to myself? Go ahead. What are you working on? I'm working on a film about how women have transformed Mardi Gras. It's called Wild Creation, Mardi Gras Women, another long mouthful. It's it's a film that I, I did, wasn't intending to make, but I had to kind of pivot to use a popular word of the day. I had to uh, pivot because the film that I went was originally intending to make was just not happening. Well, it harkens back to your days in New Orleans too. Yeah. I, and that's, that was the connection. Right. I have some very good friends down there. And so one of my friends is in this crew called a skeleton crew. Every year they, they make paper mache heads to celebrate Mardi Gras. So I, I went down to make a documentary about this particular crew and things happened along the way. And I ended up turning and, and making it a, a film about the history of women's participation in Mardi Gras. Now, Sasha, I know your next one got a short title for a change. Trouble Don't Last. That's correct. What's the progress on that at this point? Trouble Don't Last is a movie that was filmed in 1984, 1985 by an artist named Bruce Connor. It started as a gift for his friend, who was the Reverend Paul Foster of the Union Baptist Church in Vallejo, California. Paul Foster was also a lead singer for 13 years with a, a very important gospel group called the Soul Stirrers. Right. Bruce Connor sets out to make this documentary about a reunion concert and then films interviews, travels to Texas, travels to Chicago, but never finishes this film. So I am in the process of working with the film's original producer, Henry Rosenthal. Again, big archive of material from another artist to try and tell the story of this film. We're trying, you know, it's it's a concert movie, right? So there's not an inherent 
story arc. So we're trying to figure that out for me. The, the one film that's been really important to me, like as a model for the editing, is a movie called Buena Vista Social Club right. from the late 1990s. Footnote. Buena Vista Social Club was a 1999 documentary by Vim Vendors about the legendary musicians of Cuba. It was framed around two of their performances in Amsterdam and New York City. You dip in and out of the concert and do these sort of character profiles and visiting people's homes and seeing them rehearsing in some spaces or recording in other spaces. So it has that kind of structure. You know, it's evergreen because it's been in production for almost 40 years. In fact, wow. I was just saying to someone today, maybe I should stop stressing out about how long it's taking and just tell myself, we'll finish it for 2024 because that will be the 40th anniversary of the original reunion concert. Oh, wow. Well, and then there's Summer of Soul. That took, what, 30, 40 years it took at least? many years. Mm-hmm. So it does happen. So one last question I always like to ask everybody before I sign off, and that is, what are you watching when you're sitting at home watching TV or streaming or go to the movie theater? What are y'all watching? Well, I have seen some great festival documentaries that may be a little hard to see, but I'm going to just throw them out there. I just watched this unbelievable film called After Sherman, and it's about his family's multi-generational legacy of owning land as a Black family in South Carolina. And it's just a fantastic, beautiful film. Another film that I saw, an archive film that I saw at Sundance that I recommend very highly is called Fire of Love, about two French volcanologists, people who study volcanoes. They were this married couple who were in love with each other and in love with volcanoes. And they traveled around the world studying them and filming them, right? So it's about their love story. And there's all this beautiful volcano footage. Uh, Michelle, what about you? You watching anything on TV or streaming or are you a a movie buff too? Well, uh, we just mentioned Summer of Soul. That was one of the last ones I've seen. And I I really loved that. I watched Ozark. I finished Uh, Ozark last week. We're halfway through (laughs) the last few episodes. Don't give anything away yet. But yeah, we're halfway there. (laughs) Y'all don't sit around and watch some of this silly stuff on Netflix or some of the, well, you said Ozark, but anything, any of that kind of stuff is just all these documentaries. Well, I mean, I watched the Abercrombie and Bitch documentary on Netflix. (laughs) (laughs) Just to see all those hot boys, I'm sure. I had to see, I had to see that one. I don't know. I want, you know, I have these two teenage girls, so I get roped into Uh, watching whatever they watch. Michelle, you, you don't have any guilty pleasures or any? No, I mean, I, I've been bad. I have to be ashamed of it. Come on. Bridgerton is fine. (laughs) No, it was, Ozark was my kind of guilty pleasure there for a while. I mean, I read a lot, you know, I, I actually read more than I watch films, to be honest. So I've been, catching up on some poetry. Uh, well, Sasha and Michelle, I want to thank you both for taking the time to talk about your docs, and I look forward to getting you back on when there's more to talk about your new documentaries. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. I've been talking to Sasha waters Fryer and Michelle Poulouse about their most recent documentaries. You can find links to both films, their personal websites, and more movies mentioned on this show on the webpage at tvjerry.com. Coming soon. In theaters. For two nights only, the release of a film that was made 45 years ago about ABBA, which is celebrating 50 years since they were formed. Firestarter, also on Peacock, starring Zac Efron and based on the Stephen King book. Happening, about a young student in 60s France who tries to get an abortion. Vortex, also set in Paris, about an aging couple who have to deal with dementia. The Mulligan, based on the book about CEO Paul McAllister, who wants a do-over in life. 
TV and streaming. Hacks, season two on HBO Max as Gene Smart goes on the road. Sneakerville, a Disney remake of Cinderella with an aspiring sneaker designer. Senior year on Netflix, the newly glamorous Rebel Wilson returns to high school after being in a coma for 20 years. Also on Netflix, Operation Mincemeat, two British intelligence officers hatch a scheme to trick the Nazis, starring Colin Firth and Matthew McFadden. On the 13th on Amazon, The Essex Serpent, a series starring Claire Danes and Tom Hiddleston searching for the titular sea monster in the 1800s. On HBO Max on the 15th, The Time Traveler's Wife, Rose Leslie and Theo James star in this love story. On the 15th on Hulu, Conversations with Friends, two Dublin college students form a strange connection with an older married couple. Next week, we look at how Virginia gets TV and film productions to come here to shoot. Thanks for listening. See you then. For more Sister, including literally thousands, thousands of, of reviews, reviews, visit tvjerry.com.